0: Thanks, Jack. And uh, good morning, friends. Welcome to Bethany Northeast. Uh, My name's Silas, associate pastor here. And um, as we look to engage and finish this series we've been going through in the book of Mark, uh, we're going to be going to the longer ending of Mark in the book. But as we approach the text, let us pray one more time and just welcome the ways that God is trying to speak to us through what I'm sure you'll find is a strange-looking text. And so let us pray as we approach God's Word. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time in our week to pause. We pray that this spoken Word would be faithful to your written Word, that it would lead us to you, our living Word, Jesus Christ, and we pray that that would transform our lives in real, intangible ways. We pray this with Christ, by the Spirit, and everyone said, Amen. In 1912, George Went Hensley was ready to preach. He's a newly ordained minister in the Church of God. This is in Cleveland, Tennessee, and he was making his rounds across Southeast Tennessee. He was visiting existing churches, learning from other pastors who'd been in ministry a lot longer than him. And in truth, the fact that he was a minister at all was kind of miraculous. He grew up in rural Appalachia, and little George, uh, he'd had a fair share of run-ins with the law, so to speak. He. he, he had a penchant for moonshining in the area. And so because of that, you know, he, again, arrested multiple times, and then he finally in 1908 had this come-to-Jesus moment, cleaned up his act, transformed life, and he committed himself to living a holy life. He decided to become a preacher, and he wanted to preach the whole scripture rightly divided. Right, the whole scripture rightly divided. So one day he was preaching in Cleveland, and some folks didn't take kindly to his holiness preaching style. They didn't like it. They didn't like he was condemning uh, and pushing back on his family, the moonshiners and everything happening. So he, he wasn't liked in the area by some. And so to get back at him, some people came into his church and they released a couple rattlesnakes into the middle of the church. And pandemonium happens, people are screaming, Uh, people are running out the doors, and then he feels the power of God, and he goes and he picks up one of the rattlesnakes, and it becomes docile in his hand. And then slowly, the church itself, they, uh, they followed suit. And then he's like, wait, 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 what is this? He's illiterate, but he knows the Bible. And so he's like, what just happened? Oh, this is, this is Mark 16. This is Mark 16, verses 17 through 18. You will pick up serpents and they will not harm you. You will drink poison, won't harm you. You'll touch fire, all good. Like he puts this together. And so he then becomes the first, not the only, but the first ordained minister who kind of makes this a practice throughout the Southeast. And through the 20s, this kind of grows. It grows and grows and grows. Um, And I will say, I'm as Pentecostal as I come. Born in the Pentecostal Assembly of Canada, went to a Church of God school in the South, which is a different kind of Pentecostal school, ordained in the Church of God, the same denomination as this guy, went to PTS, not Princeton, but the Pentecostal Theological Seminary, uh, We tried to get, I think, they tried to get, like, the website for it. It didn't work. Um, PTS, different one. Not as, quote-unquote, prestigious. But here we are, right? He does this thing, and I'm as Pentecostal as they come, but the thing is, like, this is kind of crazy. This is crazy. You're like, what do you do with this? What are you supposed to do with this? I think one of the things to recognize is, first... Almost every Pentecostal denomination early on was like, yeah, this is too far, man. Like, we're kind of off the defense. So there's that side. But beyond that, there's a desire for George Hensley to to kind of parse out, like, how do I apply the word of God? What do I do with it? The text literally says that. It says, you will do these things if you believe in my name, so I guess we should do these things. We should drink poison. We should prove our worth to God because that's what God requires, right? So Andrew, if you would, open those boxes in the back. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No snakes on this plane. Um, There's two key key questions I want us to think about today as we approach this text, this longer-ending passage. And the two questions are this. How might we make sense of this passage? And then also, where do you see God being revealed in this passage? I'm about to read it for us. But again, for context, Mark 16.6 comes right on the heels of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. It sits kind of in the afterglow of Easter Sunday. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection, Easter. We had baptisms. There was this, um, this inauguration into the life of Christ. This new life is proclaimed. And now, this text sits right after that moment. And so, what do you do? How do we make sense of this? Again, our two key questions, how might we make sense of this passage? And then where do you see God being revealed in this passage? I'm going to read it for us. And so this is from Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, known as the longer ending of Mark. And we're reading in the ESV this morning. Now, when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed, <coughs> excuse me, um, those who saw him after he had arisen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. If they lay their hands on the sick, they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This is God's word. And so throughout Christian history, this passage has been approached in a variety of ways. Specifically, again, those verses, verses 16 through 18. Some choose to take it very literally and try to apply that, That's a minority of the Christian world, but that's one way to make sense of it. Others choose to ignore it or overlook it, Right? Let's just gloss over this. Move on. There's other great commissions. There's other parts of the gospel that probably reinforce a different reading than this. Let's move on. Um, Let's ignore it. Some choose to try to principalize it. So distill it down, boil it down. And like, what's the essence? What's the moral? What's the principle when you kind of boil off the crazy here? That's another way to do it. For us this morning, I want us to take a step back and experience this passage in the broader context of Mark. So there's three observations I want us to look at. The first thing is this. In verse 9, it begins, the passage begins by telling us that on the first day of the week, this is when this happens. The first day of the week. Now, this is important language, right? This is key language. Because it's telling us that we're now in the story of God talking about like a new reality, a new week, a new slate, a new way of engaging the world. All through the book of Mark, Mark has been, and Jesus has been, connecting these threads about new creation is here. New things are being remade. So you can make all of the ties and the ways that Jesus, through the book of Mark, quote-unquote, reverses. All of these things that happen through history. And as that's happening in this new way, one of the realities that this longer ending invites us to is it describes a new reality that's been inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection. Like death is no longer what it was. There's a new life that's found in Christ. New creation, the first day of the week is here. So this kind of frames out a new way of engaging the world, but also a new way of experiencing spirituality and life with God. Verse 9 is important for the rest of the tone for how this passage can read us. If we go to our second verse, verse 15 is the nature... Of the Great Commission that's mentioned here. Notice the the, the scope. Hi, Taka. Um, notice the scope of how this great commission happens. It says, go into all the world, all the cosmos, and proclaim the gospel to all creation. The whole creation. All created things. Right now, normally in Matthew and the other gospels in the Great Commission it says, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to all nations, all ethnos. But this is unique because it says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation, all created things. All created things. The Greek word here is katesis And it's curious because of the way it refers to all created things. Typically, when we think of creation, we think of wildlife, we think of nature, we think of humans. We go back to Genesis and we envision creation described there, right? So like the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, everything in between, that's creation. This is true. This is part of kestesis, but also kestesis refers to a legal or judicial function authorities and institutions, legal structures. If we could get that picture up there, Maj, with that diagram of different ways that this word expresses itself, it refers to a variety of things. And that changes the nature of this great commission. Like, note the uniqueness of this commission compared to the other gospels. The scope of the Markin Great Commission is holistic, right? Nothing is beyond the realm and scope of God's creation. That's all things created, everything we think about in Genesis, but then also every community we participate with, every order that exists. This Markin Commission says, proclaim the good news to everything that has been Created, So think about what that means, right? That means that we interact with people, but we also interact with and we bring redemption and we call redemption to systems that are around us, to the earth, to people, but then also the things that make it for people to be together. This is our second radical point from this text. Lastly, notice in verse 16, it says, believe and be baptized. Those who believe and are baptized will be saved. Believe and be baptized. This is talking about assent, what you acknowledge, what you assent to, then also your action. There's something that comes after. Assent and action combined spell out salvation in Mark. This is one of the curious and shocking things that happens, right? Notice, it's not just belief alone. In Mark 5, the demons, they believe in Jesus. They'll acknowledge who Jesus is. But the action that accompanies that knowing of who God is, knowing of who Jesus is, doesn't make them salvific. Are we catching this? Salvation in the book of Mark has an action component directly tied to the ascent. How do the things that you reflect and live out reflect the one that you ascent to? Right? So this is one of the keys for parsing out what is happening in the rest of this book. Remember, friends, in this whole book, Mark one it tells us it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Now we might say like, oh, because it's at the beginning of of the book, well, that's just telling us like an intro to the book of Mark that's going to tell us about Jesus. But the book itself is called the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And that invites us to reflect on what Jack uh, framed out for us last week in the Easter sermon, right? The shorter ending. He talked about how Mark invites us to live the rest of the story with our lives. So the book of Mark in verse 8 just kind of ends really abruptly. It says, live out the rest of the story. Write the rest of the story with your life. The longer ending of Mark, it carries the same thread, but with a bit more direction. So when we get to verses 17 and 18, the question we should ask isn't, Which signs do we take literally? Which ones do we take figuratively? How do I decide, like, is now the time to pick up a snake? Is now the time to drink up poison? No, like, that's the wrong question. It's not the question to ask. Instead, in these verses, every command serves as a case study that asks us this question. Do your actions reflect your assent? Does your baptism as a new creation in Christ move you beyond belief into action that reflects the one that you are now grafted into? So each one of these actions is a case study. It ties back. There's ways to read each one. Think about it like this. Cast out demons in Christ's name. The question that it's asking us is, will your life perpetuate chaos, or will it bear peace on the world? Will your life perpetuate chaos, or will it bear peace in the world? They will speak in new tongues. Will your life be characterized by the uniformity of the Tower of Babel, or the unity of Pentecost, where everyone hears the gospel in their own language? Right? So in the Old Testament, you have this story of the Tower of Babel. Everyone comes together in one language and they make a tower together. And it's all the same. There's a uniformity there that tries to ascend to build a tower, to become like their own gods. You get to the story of Pentecost in Acts 2. And now you have the same message being heard, but it's heard in the language of every nation, tribe, and tongue. There's a difference between uniformity and unity. One, in this side, holds together a message of God that's proclaimed and hears it in unique and different languages. This one tries to make everything the same. When it says in this passage, they will speak with new tongues, one way to read that is, again, that question, will your life be characterized by the uniformity of Babel Or are you going to hear the way God is calling you towards unity in the rest of the world? Can you hear God's voice in the voice of others that aren't like yours? I'm going to send you to all creation. You're going to proclaim my gospel to people, to the earth, to systems. Will you do that and not just try and make things uniform, but discover how God is at work here? Here's the tough one. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. What do we do with this? The question it asks us is, will your life be seized with deceit? Or will you handle and deal with lies that keep you from loving God and neighbor? In the earliest text we have in Genesis, we have that image of the snake, One who misleads and deceives. The question is will you be seized by the snake or will you take hold of what the snake is trying to do in you? Will you handle and deal with lies that keep you from loving God and neighbor? If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Is your consumption guided by self-preservation or will you drink the cup of Christ with Christ? And then this one, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. As you support folks in need, do you see how they're healing you in your intercession of them? Like you need them just as much as they need your healing and your presence? We can sometimes think of healing as a one-way street. And this passage, in my tradition, has oftentimes been used to enhance that, to augment that one-way direction of how God flows from the healthy to the sick. Let me pray for you who have a sick body and call the healing of God on your life. And then it's good to pray for others. As I was reading this passage, I was reminded of this, moment in a previous church where we had two people in our congregation who really had chronic illnesses, pretty debilitating. One used a walker, one was in a wheelchair all the time. And in the Pentecostal tradition, you know, the idea of praying for for healing is a big piece of our expression of Christian uh, spirituality. So they, throughout their lives, had been prayed for often, a lot. I remember we hosted a healing service. I remember asking both of these uh, individuals, it's like, will you pray for us? Like, we need your agency in ways that our congregation does not recognize its brokenness. Pray for us and grant us healing. And they did. They exerted their own agency in deeply healing ways. I remember the lady came up and said, that was the first time in 30 years in church that I've ever been given the space to pray for someone, not just be an object that's prayed over, but a subject who has agency to embody the fullness of God. As a community Our church received healing that day. An awareness of each other's struggles, a sense of humility in reception. In receiving prayer from unlikely sources, it opens us up to say, how is God speaking to us today? Through the most unexpected places, through unexpected people. Here's the thing, friends. The long ending of Mark, it doesn't just wrap up the story. The the long ending of Mark is the litmus test for our faith in action. Not by way of what it describes. Like, we're not meant to blindly parrot Mark 16. Again, that first example, George Hensley, we can see what happens when you do that. We're not meant to parrot Mark 16. Instead, we're meant to recognize what Mark 16 prescribes. It states authoritatively. It advises that what we assent to as followers of Christ should shape our actions as Christ followers. It advises that what we assent to, what we say we believe, what we affirm as this is the... Theology and the ethics and the character of God. This is what we should go to. It invites us to bring our actions into alignment with that. Actions and assent together and combined. That's what this text opens up for us. This is how these verses read us. Another way of saying that is it inspires us to practice what we preach. Born in 1915 in Davis City, Iowa, John McConnell grew up as a pastor's kid. His dad was a Pentecostal preacher, traveling doctor. So at that time, when he was growing up, kind of the scientific world and the religious world held together in his father. And this made him and inspired him to do the same, but deeply Pentecostal and also very interested in the sciences. And so he became a chemist, started working in a plastic lab, developing new new materials. And he was shocked by the amount of waste that was happening from their trials, the kind of pollution that was happening from his company and from his lab, and just by the industry in general. And so he slowly, over time, as one, as a Pentecostal who... uh, engages the world by feeling that there's a sense of God in God's spirit all through the world. He, he felt challenged to say, like, this is wrong. But it's not wrong just because it's hurting others. It's not wrong just because it's devastating the earth. It's wrong because of moral obligation. Like, this is grieving the heart of God. And so... Slowly over time, he grows in his activism. He develops a couple organizations around the idea of ecology and protection. And then on Friday, we just celebrated Earth Day. That was the day that this Pentecostal proposed in 1969 to UNESCO. It was voted on and supported. The next year, Earth Day became a thing. His ethic and his ascent, his actions and his belief coming together in a way that says, if everything I have is God's, if all of earth and all creation speaks to the glory of God, we can't mar God's creation and mar God's glory. So his ethic for even developing and launching Earth Day, proposing it in systems, Proclaiming the gospel in ways that don't even need to overtly name Jesus, but proclaim God's God's glory? John McConnell did this. Again, we live in the afterglow of his action celebrated two days ago. And so where does this leave us? When we have a text like this, Again, there are a variety of ways to read it. But more importantly than how do you read this literally, figuratively, is the question of how does this text read your life? Where do you find yourself feeling God's action and agency and conviction and comfort and all of these things, challenges, in the way that we can read a hard text like this? We started with the question, how do we make sense of this? What do we do? Well, we can pray and we can discern together how in our lives individually and corporately as a body, God is inviting us in all the case studies that we live to find how God is at work. To bring new creation to bear. To help creation recognize what does life mean in light of the resurrection and death of Jesus? Like, why does it matter? You might have heard this distinction before. Oftentimes, the questions Christianity seeks to answer nowadays is questions about atheism versus theism, problem of evil, God's justice. We, we, we talk about it in these ways, and we can frame argument or discussion about God over here, all around the atheism questions. But I think for us, more often than not, especially today, the question we're asking culturally isn't these ones. That's not to say these aren't important. But the questions we're asking now are questions of apathyism. Should I be apathetic to this whole faith thing or not? Because what does it do? What does it make? What does it leave in its wake? These are the questions that our neighbors are asking, that our friends are asking, that we're asking. If we believe in this resurrected God, what actions does it make in my life? And beyond that, what action am I called to if my ascent is an ascent of the Lord? Now that's a tough question. And each of us are going to answer that in different, unique ways because we're all different, unique people. In different stations of life, different spheres of influence, different abilities to preach the gospel to all creation. But that's also the beauty of this text. In telling us to preach the gospel to all creation, that means it doesn't need to just look like Silas, preaching right now. It can look like being in the park with another family friend who's going through something difficult and proclaiming the gospel there. It can look like going to your job and performing well to the glory of God. It can look like caring for someone in need, long term care in your family. It can take a whole bunch of different shapes. Proclaim the gospel to all creation. As we reflect on the way that this text has been unpacked, there's so many threads, I'm sure, that are left untied. I wonder if you would join me in prayer, one for a minute of silent reflection, to chew on the language and the way God is reading us, And then, two, to receive a prayer of commission into our week to come, into the weeks to come, into the year to come. Would you join me? Let's begin. Jesus, we love you. We're grateful for your life, for your death, for your resurrection, the way your life opens up life for us to participate in. We pray as we go our way this week that you would be near to us in helping us discern how our actions can match your ascent. How we might join with you in the renewing of all faith. How we might partner with you in proclaiming your good news to all creation. We recognize that might look different. It might bring us into relationship with people we might not meet otherwise. And yet your spirit guides us. And so Lord, do your work. Be near to us. And as we draw near to you, may we reflect you in faithful ways. In ways that bring heaven on earth. In ways that rediscover the fullness of your shalom in all the cosmos. Bless us this week. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. And everyone said amen.